recognised in any way by the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. With Fiona Healy, Indy Leclerc, Ian MacDonald, Christina Smith and Chris Wallace. The Drugcast, October 2013 Extra Edition. Welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Christina Smith, and joining me in the studio today are Indy Leclerc and new Jogcaster Fiona Healy. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi, Christina. So, Fiona, you've just joined us at Jodrell. Can you tell us what you're doing here? Uh, yeah, um, I'm going to be studying radio observations of classical novae with Professor Tim Bryan for my PhD. Excellent, excellent. In the show this time, Chris talks to Dr. Rob Crittenden about the microwave background, and Dr. Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Indy talks to Dr. Brian Rees about planetary nebulae in this month's Job Bite. Hello. In this month's Job Bite, I'm with Dr. Brian Rees. Hello, Brian. Hello. Could you tell us a bit more about yourself and, and your background and what ties you to Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics? I've recently done a PhD at Jodrell Bank studying planetary nebulae. Okay. I have just completed a paper and I am working on a second paper on planetary nebulae. Great. So um, I'm not sure many of our listeners will know what planetary nebulae are, actually. So could you maybe run run us by the basics of, of what these objects are and how they form? When a star of about one to eight solar masses basically goes into the red giant phase, it then consumes its helium. Okay. Core. Helium and hydrogen are then fused in shells around the core. The star's envelope begins to be expelled by radiation pressure and by thermal shocks. Okay. And the ejector basically is eventually ionized as the core shrinks, the temperature of the star rises. Sure. And therefore we, we actually get a display of mainly ionised material, but there are other things in the nebulae besides ionised material. There is also molecular and non-illuminated items and dust. Okay, so so we're looking at a, a sort of star in the later stages of its life that starts to essentially throw off most of its envelope into the surrounding space. Yes. I see. And um, actually, these make for very pretty pictures, don't they? You sort of get these wisps of, of um, ionised material and gas coming it's out ra- of the It's rather more than wisps. But, uh... Well, yeah, actually, yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned you've just published a paper uh, about planetary nebulae, so what, what was the gist of that? Well, basically, um, Weidman and Dyers produced a, a paper. They suggested that towards the galactic bulge, nebulae that had a noticeable difference between their length and width appeared to show a preponderance of an angle towards about 100 degrees from north. We were looking at nebulae in the galactic bulge and we thought we would see if we could find any trace of this in our sample. When, we, when you say the galactic bulge, just to clarify for our listeners, that's sort of the, uh, the centre of the galaxy. That's towards the centre of the galaxy. Yeah. So which instruments did you use to, to, sort of, to look at the galactic bulge and, and pick out these, uh, these planetary nebulae? We use the new technology telescope, which is run by ESO in Chile, okay. and also images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Right, okay. So this was optical then? It was um, all optical, all optical. Yes. and it was in the... We basically used images using the hydrogen alpha filter. Is that because that's what's most sensitive to, to planetary nebulae, or...? It gives some of the brightest images, basically. 
And uh, and how many, so how many of these did you pick? Did, of these objects did you count or did you pick up? Well, we uh, we had over 130. We, we were able to measure angles on 130 of them, and we'd split them up into different categories. Why did you choose to look towards the galactic bulge? Is it because there are more there, or is their distribution rather uniform across the galaxy? We were looking at the galactic bulge because we were basically investigating nebulae, planetary nebulae, in the galactic bulge for other reasons, basically. It wasn't to do this particular paper. So basically we were making measurements on those nebulae, and mm -hmm. we thought we would check out the results shown and by Whiteman and others. So just to clarify, when you say, uh, when you talk about the angle of these things, what, what exactly do you mean? What you can do, you've got an elongated nebula. Okay. So you can measure it, the angle it produces from north to east on the sky. It's all two-dimensional. Right. You only see a two-dimensional projection. Of course, yeah. These were then converted to galactic coordinates, and we then used those angles to measure to see what the, what, whether the... Basically, these were inclined from north towards the plane, the galactic plane. So why are they elongated in one particular direction? Well, basically, you would argue that that nebulae should be spherical, but yeah. in reality, this doesn't seem to be the case. Okay. And you get various forms. And the basic one, that the most spectacular, of course, are the bipolars and butterfly nebulae and variations thereon. Changes could be due to dust disks, magnetic fields, as suggested, and binary stars is another one that uh, suggested oh, yeah. for causing variation. Tell us a bit about a bit more about the main result of your paper. I mean, you found something a little bit special about all these uh, planetary nebulae in the bulge. Well, when we looked at the overall sample, we found we found basically we got no re no result. It, it all seemed to be random. When we actually looked, took the bipolar nebulae right. that we had as a as a sample we found that there was a significant result in a deviation from randomness and that mm -hmm. the with a mean angle approximately along the galactic plane. These bipolar nebulae all seem to be aligned uh, in one direction. Is that is that along...? They weren't all aligned in that direction, okay. but there were many of them that were. The, right. the distribution wasn't random. Okay, so there was some sort of pattern there that was yes. going on. Could you delve into a bit into bipolar nebulae a bit more, since these um, seem to be the sort of the interesting ones? Um, what distinguishes them from, I don't know, your garden variety planetary nebulae? <laughs> well, the most obvious thing is their shape. But um, there are a couple of theories about how they're formed. They basically involve restrictions by a big, a large dust disk around the star, okay. or due to magnetic fields caused by the star itself, which is mm. doubted because of the, the strength of the suit, any field would be would be very small, or okay. caused by a dynamo effect from a binary partner. Right, okay, so so these bipolar um, planetary nebulae, we will post uh, a few images up on the website, but they basically look like, so you've got a star with two, almost two jets coming out of it, I suppose you could call them. Think of a an hourglass uh, and variations on that, and some of them are rather more complicated, and there are all sorts of details in the outflows, but uh, that's the basic shape. And so coming back to this uh, this pattern that you observed, um, do you have any idea what could be behind that? Well, we we postulated that it may be because of the bipolar nebula being formed out of a binary system, and that the binary system itself 
was aligned due to strong magnetic fields in the bulge, in the early years of the bulge. Right. And because the material, the inflowing material from the cloud of dust and gas mm -hmm. is restricted in falling across the magnetic field lines, right. but not along them, that would produce a disk that's perpendicular to the field lines. The stars would form in the disk, so right. they would be rotating, as it were, All sort of around the field lines, if you yeah. see what I mean. Yeah. Although the stars have moved away, then but there's nothing still... to actually change that alignment sure. as they move away as a binary pair through the belt. Interesting, yeah, because, I mean, all these all these planets and are completely in isolation. They're, they're completely um, distinct from one another, so it was curious, I suppose, to, to, to see a pattern emerge there in the first place. We were not expecting to see anything. That's, that's kind of the way science works. You sort of see stuff where you're not expecting to find it, and something really interesting crops up. What future observations could be made to maybe... Did you, would you expect there to, to be further patterns, maybe in larger samples of, of planetary nebulae, for example? I would hope somebody will actually um, take a larger sample, possibly in the infrared, because there are parts of the bulge that are obscured, so we couldn't see nebulae in there. Right. So a larger sample would be useful, mm -hmm. red would be useful. You have to make sure, of course, that you haven't got a foreground nebulae. Basically, that can be helped with radio observations of these nebulae as well to make sure they're not in the foreground, or okay. be even behind the bulbs for that matter. So there are always restrictions where a, a good, strong, and high resolution... Well, we had a high-resolution sample, but mm -hmm. the, the, any bigger sample would also have to be high-resolution. Sure, yeah, of course. Presumably with a bigger sample, if I've understood correctly, would maybe be able to tell us a bit more about the, the sort of the early conditions that were happening in the bulge in terms of maybe the, the, the magnetic field that was going on there and that sort of thing? Well, the first thing about the uh, bigger sample, of course, it would make the result more, uh, more robust, or it could, of course. It, it, I mean, there's always the possibility it would refute them. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's true. A larger sample would help in that respect. It would also cover the area, if it was in the infrared, it would cover the areas that we haven't, haven't looked at. Yeah. And it, we, we could see if the pattern was even more interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Great. Well, that was that was really fascinating. I know a lot more about planetary nebulae now. So thank you very much, Dr. Priorys, for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Indy. Now we have Chris talking to Dr. Rob Crittenden about the cosmic microwave background. Joining us today on the Jodcast is Dr. Robert Crittenden from the University of Portsmouth. Hello. Hello. So you're talking to us today on, uh, your title is Non-Gaussianities in the Cosmic Microwave Background. Is that that's correct, isn't it? That's right. So could you first explain what the cosmic microwave background is? So the cosmic microwave background is basically it's radiation left over from the Big Bang. When the universe was young, it was much hotter than it is today. And uh, there was a lot of very excited electrons and, and protons and other things floating around. And there's also radiation, which was scattering between them. And so that's been, been there ever since the Big, Big Bang started. But when the universe cooled down to a certain level, uh, eventually the electrons and protons were, were able to combine together to form hydrogen atoms. And when that happens, something like 400,000 years after the Big Bang, all of a sudden the universe becomes transparent to this light, um, which, which basically directly comes to us from the very edges of our observable universe to where we are today. As it sort of is very old light, it hasn't really been modified by any other processes, things that happened along the way, it gives us a very clear picture of what the universe looked like 
at this time of 400,000 years after the Big Bang, basically gives us a, a baby picture of the universe. Um, so if you think about the age of myself, 45 years old, compare that to the 13 billion years, 13, 14 billion year age of the, of, of the universe, this is basically 400,000 years is the equivalent of, of, of just a an hour or two after birth. So, so this is uh, the first picture of, of, that we have of, of the universe, and it allows us to try to look at that and try to extrapolate backwards to figure out what happened before that period. So it's it's a, it's our best picture at the moment, or, or best source of information of, of of getting information about the early universe. So that's what the cosmomicrate background is, and you're talking about non-Gaussianities. What do you hope before we get to understand what? they actually are. What do you hope to be able to probe using non-Gaussianities of the cosmic background? Well, we're looking to probe models of the very early universe. Um, we, we have the Big Bang model, which is works very well in explaining a whole host of observations that we know about. And so, so we, we very much believe it's true, but it brings in other kinds of questions about how the universe began. Um, because the Big Bang doesn't tell you anything about the initial conditions of, uh, about the universe. And it seems like we need fairly special initial conditions in order to explain what we see today. So, for example, we don't see that the universe, the universe potentially could be curved, um, but we don't see any sign of, of that curvature of, of, of the large-scale universe. And if you extrapolate back into the past, then that curvature must have been really, really small in the beginning of the universe. And, and inflation is a model which, which tries to, to explain why the universe began the way it, way it began. Basically, what it proposes is that sometime in the very early universe, we're talking, I mean, fractions of a second here, the universe went through a period of, of, of very fast accelerated expansion. And what this accelerated expansion does, it sort of drives away any kind of curvature that you have. It sort of completely irons out the universe. And it also gives you a way of, of creating the fluctuations that we see, the, the seeds for structure that, that eventually develop to form galaxies and, and clusters of galaxies that we, that, that we know about. Okay, so you're trying to probe inflation theories then? That's right. And these are and the seed perturbations which you then we then see in the cosmic microwave background yeah the problem is that i mean we have this sort of vague notion of of, of inflation but there are hundreds if not thousands of, of of different ways it might might have been implemented and we we don't have that many observables that we can look at to try to say which one of those ways is correct and so we're, we're trying to look for as many different handles on on that that process as we can find um and non-gaussianity is 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 another handle that that we haven't really considered before in simple words could you explain non-gaussianities well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a negative. So it's, it's sort of hard to, to say. I mean, what we're saying is what it's not. Um, what it's not is, is, is something which would be called a Gaussian or normal distribution. Um, so when we look at the temperature fluctuations on, on the sky, what a Gaussian distribution would, would say is that, I mean, at the not most naive level, that the distribution of, of temperature pixels follows a nice bell curve, the way that you generically expect things to happen. There's, there's something where a normal curve or a bell curve is, is, is something that happens in all sorts of different kinds of physical, for all the different physical reasons, because it's sort of the most generic thing that can, that can occur when, when, when you start adding different kinds of things together. If we don't see that kind of, of sort of generic behavior and see some deviation from that behavior, then that could be a signal for, for the special physics that was going on in the uni early universe. So you're saying that the inflation made these original perturbations and these original changes of density in the universe. And then we're trying to look at those in the cosmic microwave background by 
having a look at their distribution, seeing whether they're bell curve or not, you can pin down which inflation model caused those perturbations. So. That's right. I mean, so we, we do know, or the, the microwave background is telling us more and more about those original seeds of, of structure. And so, so we know relatively how, how much structure there is on very large scales compared to how much it is on smaller scales. But this is giving us an, another handle on that. I mean, uh, inflation also predicts, for example, a spectrum of gravitational radiation or gravity waves coming from, from the early universe, which we haven't yet seen. Um, which would give us another handle. But this special distribution or this, this non-bell curve distribution would give us some kind of signal uh, for, for how the physics actually occurred. Where does your research come into, into this then? Okay, well, what I'm focusing on today is, is trying to understand a little bit better about how you go from the predictions of inflation, which occur microseconds after the Big Bang, out to the physics of what we actually see on this, the microwave sky, what, what those ma maps are telling us. Because there, there is 400,000 years of, of processing that goes on in that time. We think we have a pretty good idea of how that works. We think it should, for the most part, translate what we see from these early universe theories like inflation into the CMB. That should be fairly one-to-one -one kind of correspondence to, to what we expect. But you can have more complicated physics, which ends up processing that in so, such ways so that you could take something which is nice, pure Gaussian, pure bell curve to begin with, and that, that evolution in that 400,000 years before the microwave background is created makes it become non-bell curve shape. You have some kind of intrinsic non-Gaussianity, some intrinsic signal, which is just there because the physics is, is, is non-linear. You know that gravitational fluctuations, or there's a natural system for amplifying small perturbations to larger perturbations. And we know that, that at some level that's going to be non-linear non and, and cause, source these, these kinds of, of signals. And this question is, how big are those things? What is the underlying physics that drives this changing in the perturbations from inflation to the cosmic microwave background? Because you said that you're, you're going to have these non-gasianities caused by these physics. Could you briefly explain what that physics is? Well, it's, it's uh, quite a complex um, system of, of or network of things to try to keep track of. So so effectively, in, in the simplest models, we start out with sort of some kind of fixed ratio of the densities of, of light to ordinary matter to dark matter. And, and that ratio is, is basically the same at any place uh, in time. And then we have to evolve those things from, from, from the universe until today. And we have to keep track of, of, of how, how each one of those components evolves in, in, in that period. So we have to keep track of, of how the density in a particular region of, of space, the density of, of baryons or ordinary matter evolves and the density of photons evolves and the density of dark matter evolves. And, and so it, it's, it's trying to keep track of all those things. And, and also, for example, neutrinos, these very light particles are, are also in the universe, and we, we, we have to keep track of all these, these different things and trying to understand precisely how not only their densities evolve, but also how they're, how they're moving. So these evolving under gravity, mm -hmm. uh, these density perturbations, what, what other physics is going into how these evolve then? Well, a lot of them are, are, are only evolving through gravity. Things like the, the, the dark matter are only interacting gravitationally, but we also have uh, scattering between the light and, and the, the electrons and protons in the, in the early universe. Um, and that couples very tightly the, the densities in the light to the densities in, 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 the, in the ordinary matter, the, the, the electrons and the protons. Um, and so for a long time, the scattering is, is very efficient. And then only at this, this time of, of about 
400,000 years old, the universe cools down enough that the electrons and, and, and protons can, can, can merge to form the hydrogen. And, and then that's when the universe becomes transparent. So you're talking about describing a universe, all the constituents that we know exist in the universe, and just almost turning the handle to find out what happens given a simple theory of inflation. And from that, say, how much of this non-Gaussianity comes through this simple turning of the handle with the simple physics of, as you say, scattering from electrons and um, photons and, and gravity? Yeah, I mean, it's simple physics, but it's, it's, it's hard to keep track of to some extent. So, uh, you know, even in, in the simplest case where, where you just have dark matter um, and you started it sort of spread fairly homogeneously, um, to evolve a simulation like that until the present, it's quite an expensive computation because, because in effect... You're having to look at how all these different particles attract and, and interact with each other at the same time. And this, this, that's sort of in the usual case, when you usually look at the microwave background, it's, it's simpler than that. But when you want to get more accurate, then you have these, these nonlinearities which, which kick in, which, which then um, make it a much more difficult cal- calculation. And so you're trying to almost tell us what is masking a, a signal from inflation from the physics that we already understand, just actually following it through properly. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. it's something that basically has to be there if, if we follow the physics, but but because the physics has been so complicated, nobody's actually done that calculation mm-hmm. before. Okay. Um, so, so, so that's what we're trying to do, trying to figure out how much you, you might bias or fool yourself into believing that there's something interesting from inflation there when, when, when really it's just ordinary physics. You said earlier that the perturbations in density came from inflation theory. Could you briefly explain why, how that actually occurs? Right. Well, I mean, so like I was saying before, inflation is is a a period of of very fast accelerated expansion, um, much like what we're going through today. Through through um, probably know about dark energy, which is causing the present universe to to expand. This is a similar kind of period, but in the very early universe. So it happening at at a very uh, much higher energy scales. And so this this period of inflation, what's happening is is that. During this period, you can have what are called quantum fluctuations in, in the fields that are hanging around uh, the universe at that time. They have quantum fluctuations like anything does. And, but, and so, so those quantum fluctuations mean that the density fluctuations are created. But then what happens is that because of the accelerated expansion, these density fluctuations that you create are pulled and stretch to very large scales where they can no longer interact anymore. They, they, they go beyond the horizon size, we, we call it, the, the distance to which you can have causal physics acting. Uh, and so they, they basically get frozen in. And the more inflation happens, the bigger these, these fluctuations become. And eventually they become what we're seeing in the sky today, from the fairly small scales all the way up to the size of the early universe. All the, the theory is that all the, these, these, these seed fluctuations were created within a fairly small size, but then just stretched exponentially into larger and larger sizes. And so what caused that rapid expansion? Well, I mean, similar to, to theories of, of present expansion, really what you need to, to expand quickly is some kind of matter or energy, which basically has, has negative pressure, effectively acts repulsively under gravity. Today, we have various theories for, for what that dark energy may be. Usually, when we talk about inflation, we're talking about some kind of field, some kind of, of, of variety of matter, which is sort of in what's called sort of trapped in, in, in some kind of false vacuum state. So, so it's uh, similar to, to, to dark energy, but, but it's happening in the very early universe. So you're saying there's a specific type of 
particle which existed in this early period, which drove this expansion. So why don't we see this particle now? For one, we don't know what that particle is. We don't know how it fits into our standard model for the other fields. Um, there are some theories where it could be related in some limit to, to the Higgs field, um, the Higgs boson that people, people know about. Uh, normally, it's, it's assumed to be some, some new field that we didn't know about that eventually decays into the, into the, to the normal kind of matter that we see today. So it's not a stable particle. It's something that, that, that decays away when the universe is, is, is relatively young. So for inflation, you require there to be particles which we don't already know about. For the most part. Uh, most, most of the theories that we talk about are, are completely unrelated to the standard model. A lot of them are motivated by, by extensions of the standard model, either what are called grand unified theories or, or string theory models of the universe. Do you think that CERN will help you discover what particles play a part in inflation, or are there reasons why you think that won't? It's probably unlikely. Um, the candidates we have for inflation are are usually fairly massive because we're thinking about these things happening at the very early universe when the universe was incredibly hot, much hotter than, than CERN can get to. Um, so it's possible if it's related to the Higgs boson, and there might be some observational signs, but for the most part, most of the models would would not be that open to exploration through through CERN. Probing this inflation is kind of like killing two birds with one stone. You get to understand cosmology, but you also get to understand more about particle physics. Yeah, if we could figure out how inflation happened, we know something of else about about the whole zoo of particles that there are, and we would have to fit that into to, to a bigger picture. And that could give us some guidance about how you extend the standard model beyond what we see. Oh, brilliant. That's very interesting. Thank you for coming today. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for that, Chris. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. All right, I'm going to kick the odds and ends off this time around with something that's a lot more theoretical in nature than what we usually have on the show. But it's quite topical because it's related to this year's Nobel Prize in Physics. I'm, of course, talking about the Higgs boson. Um, and most of you probably know that the this year's Nobel Prize was awarded to Peter Higgs and François Englert for their prediction of the Higgs boson, which was then detected uh, last year by scientists at the Large Hadron Collider. So just before the announcement, um, a paper came up in Physical Review Letters and was mentioned on uh, on Nature, which proposes that the matter and antimatter asymmetry in the universe, basically the reason why we see the universe is full of matter rather than antimatter, when initially there would have been the same amount of both things, and that's supposedly explained um, by interactions between the Higgs boson and its antiparticle, the anti-Higgs boson, in the early universe. At the moment, we don't think, or, or particle physicists don't predict uh, an anti-Higgs, even if theoretically every particle is capable of having an antiparticle. But the the very extreme conditions in the early universe would lead to the would lead to favorable conditions for for the anti-Higgs to exist. So these two scientists, uh, two theoreticians, Sean Tulin and Geraldine Servant, reckon that an asymmetry in the amount of of Higgs and anti-Higgs bosons in the early universe would have actually translated into the asymmetry that we reckon we see today between matter and antimatter. And the idea has been called Higgsogenesis after the uh, after baryogenesis, which is the name of another um, early universe process which basically forms baryons, which are particles such as protons and neutrons. And the two scientists showed that if, if the Higgs boson also interacted with what's known as dark matter, uh, which is matter that has mass but that we can't see, 
it would also be able to produce the ratio of dark matter to visible matter that we see today. So actually, this interaction is quite exciting because it could be a potential test, new test for for um, the existence of dark matter and what dark matter po- could possibly be, um, which would happen in a particle accelerator rather than at the moment the main search of dark matter is what most of us here at Dodo Mag do, looking through telescopes and trying to figure out where it is. Is there any way they're going to be able to observationally test this theory? Observationally, not in the sense of we're used to, but maybe through particle physics experiments. And and to be honest, that's not really my area of specialization. <laughs> but they they do say that yeah, that there are there are um, experimental uh, ways of, of 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 trying to test this at, at CERN and the LHC. So possibly in the near future. Okay, cool. I'd be quite interested to know exactly as well as well how basically there's a bunch of different theories on how many Higgs there are they're going to be eventually depending on on different scenarios in particle physics and so it'd be quite interesting to see how that would affect their predictions as well because suddenly if you've got five higgs rather than just the one then that surely that must make a difference as well yeah no i mean uh, this is going to prompt a flurry of questions of listeners <laughs> about particle physics which we're not going to be able to answer we should have a guest um ask a particle physicist segment of the podcast <laughs> in the future but uh, no, definitely, I think at the moment the, the detection of the Higgs corresponds to one scenario of particle physics and um, supposedly the way they would actually test this dark matter is that when they, when they form you know, the Higgs boson in, in the interactions at CERN, it, it could possibly decay to some undetected dark matter particle. Um, and if they have a very, very precise handle on, on all of the decay products and all of the things that are coming out of their collider they might be able to figure out what it is, but that hasn't really happened yet. That's pretty interesting stuff anyway. Pretty interesting stuff. So my first odd and end uh, is from an article that I read today at Science Daily. Uh, and the headline is kind of a classic example of misleading science journal. It's very dramatic. Lone planet found without any host star. Uh, so obviously that sounds really weird because... Uh, Something like that hasn't really been heard of before. but So it turns out that uh, this international team of scientists headed up by Dr. Michael Liu from the Institute of Astronomy uh, in the University of Hawaii were looking for brown dwarfs with the PS1 Wide Field Survey Telescope and they found uh, an object which didn't really fit the bill for a brown dwarf and they weren't really sure what it was. Um, and they were able to pick it up from its its heat signal that it was giving out, but uh, it didn't really look like a star, but it didn't really look like a planet either because it was just sort of floating around in the middle of nowhere. But they compared it to exoplanets that have been directly imaged, and there aren't that many of those because usually exoplanets are only detected because of the effect that they have on their host stars, and it's really hard to actually see them um, in their own right. But this object that they found, it's called PSOJ318, point five dash twenty two. Very catchy. Very catchy, yeah, that one's gonna take on. <laughs> so, Go you look, you know, people going out on romantic walks and gazing up at PSO J three one eight point five dash twenty two. Um so that's what they call it and it actually looks more like a planet than a star, is what they found. But they don't really know what it is. But it's interesting because um it's gonna give them some clues um about how objects like that are formed because it turns out that maybe it's possible for things like this, which are a bit like planets, to form in the same way as stars. And if you go on the article there and read it, 
it leads you to another one about a similar object that was found, which actually has an accretion disk, even though it looks like mm-hmm. a planet. So that's kind of unusual. It's actually accreting matter onto itself. Yeah. But it's it's more of a planet than a star. So what they're basically doing is kind of blurring the lines between stars and planet. They're finding that it's not they're not two distinct things. You don't have stars on one end and planets on the other, that actually sometimes they can kind of meet in the middle and you have something that doesn't seem to be one or the other, so I think it's an interesting new field of study. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the thing about astronomy is that we always look at the, you know, mainly the brightest objects in the sky, and so we're talking about stars and galaxies, but obviously there are probably loads and loads of these really faint objects yeah. that are really a bit weird and that we don't know much about. We, and so. we tend not to see them because they don't really give off any light um, yep. uh, as such. I mean, the, like I said, this one was found by, by an infrared signal, so it was giving off heat, but... Mm. You know, it's not it's not a star, so it's not radiating huge amounts of light, so we'd just very easily go undetected. It's a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely <answer. laughs> Cool. Okay, and now moving a little closer to home, um and because I'm a magpie, I like diamonds and shiny things. So at a conference, um there was a group of US scientists have an- announced that they believe that diamond rain could be falling on Saturn and Jupiter, which is really exciting, in in my opinion. And basically, it's been thought for a long time that Uranus and Neptune could harbour gemstones like this because they're, the way their atmosphere and the chemistry is that they could form due to like the temperatures and pressures involved. But it was thought that Saturn and Jupiter didn't have the right kind of atmosphere, wasn't the right composition, wasn't the right pressure, temperature, that sort of thing. Um, but they believe that due to some new atmospheric data that they've taken, that it could harbour diamonds. And basically what happens is that in the upper atmosphere, they they call it the thunderstorm alley, but basically you get lightning storms turn methane into soot, which is carbon, and it falls, and as it falls, the pressure on it increases, and they say that after about 1,000 miles, it turns to graphite, so, you know, carbon in your pencil mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um and as it continues to fall, the pressure increases, temperature increases, and it it turns into diamonds. But as they, uh, as as a quite awesome quote by them is, diamonds are not forever on Saturn and Jupiter. And as they go further and further down, it's it's unlikely that diamonds would be able to survive that far. So kind of once you get down to about thirty thousand kilometers, a little maybe a little further. They are probably not going to survive that. But, you know, they've fallen quite a long way as diamonds. And they say that the largest of them could be about a centimetre in size. So, you know, A-list celebrities would be pretty pretty happy with that. You'd have to get them cut, of course, if you could have <laughs> them. Um, do you reckon that these would be, like, would they be recognisable to us as diamonds? Are they diamonds in the same sense as the diamonds that we pull out of mines on Earth? Well, um, I mean, in general, if someone were to hand me an uncut diamond, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't recognise it for like a diamond. Like a little stone. Exactly. Um, but I mean, they'd probably look a little different. I don't I don't know. This is still all theory, of essentially. Course. It's um, a shame we can't send off, you know, someone to collect them and bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a hundred years or so. It's going to yeah. be the, 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 the big status symbol in the yeah. 2110s or something. This was all proposed at a conference and other scientists say that they need to do some more work before that they before you can say for definite whether or not Jupiter or Saturn could harbour diamonds. Basically, because the, the models that have been run have been done for pure carbon instead of um, mixtures of carbon, hydrogen, helium, which is what you get in 
Saturn and Jupiter and in the atmosphere of Saturn and Jupiter. Um, but they do conclude, I think the general consensus is that you can't exclude diamond formation in Saturn and, and Jupiter, which I quite like. I like the idea of diamonds falling as rain on a planet. Yeah. It'd be kind of painful. But you, you, need... you wouldn't want to be under it. You'd need a really strong umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> and now for someone equally as bling, here's Dr. Ian MacDonald with this month's Ask an Astronomer. Our first question is from Mark, who asks, what is the mass distribution of stars in our galaxy and the universe? In the words of the inevitable Monty Python, our galaxy itself contains 100 billion stars. It's 100,000 light-years side to side. It bulges in the middle 16,000 light-years thick, but out by us it's just 300 light-years wide. We're 30,000 light-years from galactic central point. We go round every 200 million years. And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe. That basically explains the structure of the galaxy. There is something like 100 billion times the mass of the Sun in the Milky Way. There's a big bulge in the middle, at the centre of which is our local friendly supermassive black hole. But most of the mass in the galaxy is spread out in a vast disk, 100,000 light-years across. We're about halfway out in this disk, though that depends on exactly where you want to draw the edge of it. And it's a really thin disk. If you fold a normal A4 piece of paper into quarters and cut out the biggest circle you can, that's how thick the disk of the galaxy is. And most of the stars in the galaxy lie within this disk. That's why you can see the fuzzy band of Milky Way encircling the sky. You're seeing the combined light of billions of stars. And on that scale of the piece of paper, the central bulge of our galaxy is about the size of a ping-pong ball. So although it takes up a decent chunk of the galaxy, it only contains about 16% of its mass. Now there's various stars that orbit our galaxy, either by themselves, in clusters, or in small dwarf galaxies. But these are relatively few in number and don't contribute much to the total number of stars in our galaxy's sphere of influence. Going beyond our galaxy, the nearest neighbour is the Andromeda galaxy. You can just about see it with the naked eye, but telescope or binoculars will bring it out a lot better. It's about 2.5 million light years away, and it's about the same size as ours, just a little bit bigger. Now, if you cut out your galaxy from your sheet of paper, Andromeda would be a similar sort of size, a little over one and a half times the distance you can stretch with your arms out, about two and a half metres. Now, most of the space in between the galaxies is essentially devoid of stars. If you were sitting halfway between the Milky Way and Andromeda, for example, you wouldn't be able to see very much with your naked eye. You'd see two fuzzy blobs, Andromeda and the Milky Way. If your eyesight was really good, you might be able to see some of the other fuzzy blobs around them. You might even be able to see a third galaxy, M33. But unless you happen to be very lucky in where you landed, the rest of the sky would be inky blackness. And that's what most of the rest of the universe is made of. No one really knows how many galaxies there are. They go on further than we can see. There's probably at least a 100 billion galaxies, maybe many more. But they are really just islands of light in the vastness of space, most of which is only filled with a few atoms of hydrogen and a whole heap of dark things that we can't really see and don't really understand. It's so strange to think of there just being nothing if you were to look up the sky apart from two fuzzy blobs. <laughs> it's amazingly empty out there. Our next question is from Peter Ellinger, who asks, what provides the impedance to the progression of light through a vacuum that reduces the velocity to 299792458 metres per second? Well, light travels through a vacuum at somewhere close to 300,000 kilometres per second. And it goes at that speed because there's no impedance, at least none that we know of. If you introduce an impedance, like air or water or glass, the speed of light slows down. 
fact, if you have a look at Bose-Einstein condensates, they use a trick by which light can be effectively slowed down to walking pace. So I'll rephrase the question. Why does light travel in a vacuum at the speed it does? Well, the truth is we don't really know. It's one of the fundamental constants of the universe. In fact, we're not entirely sure that it's always been constant throughout the universe's history, though we think it has. If we work out where the fundamental laws of the universe, like the speed of light and gravity and all these kind of things, come from, then we might be able to work out why light has this particular speed. And that might open the door to ways of getting around the speed of light, which is the fundamental speed limit in the universe. But perhaps the best way to think about the speed of light is that it's simply a conversion. We live in four-dimensional space. You'll be familiar with three of them. The fourth is space-time. Now, normally you can think of space-time as being just the same as time, as it's only in places of very strong gravity where it changes appreciably. We fall through space-time at the rate of one second per second. But because it's a dimension like any other, we can also think of this as a distance. The speed at which we travel through space-time is a constant 300,000 kilometers a second or so, the speed of light. If you want to think in this way, it can get around all sorts of problems in relativity. In this way of thinking, we must always travel through four-dimensional space at a constant rate of 300,000 kilometers a second. If we want to travel fast in conventional three-dimensional space, that reduces the rate at which we fall through time. So if you're happy to think about four dimensions, which we kind of do anyway, then the speed of light is simply the rate at which we experience the universe. Next we have one from Jerome Tremblay, who says, This is a query from a nine-year-old. Is the universe flat or curved? Oh dear. Most people with a PhD in astrophysics struggle with this one. Well, firstly, we have to describe what we mean by a flat and curved universe. That's a universe that's curved in four dimensions. Okay, so remember that extra dimension I just snuck in the last question. It's about to get more complicated. We're used to giving directions in our daily lives in three dimensions. If we go up, down, north, south, east or west... And few of us pay attention to the shape of the Earth and the fact that our up isn't the same direction as the up they talk about on the other side of the world. Now, many people throughout history have thought the world was flat, but it's been known since the ancient Greek times that it's actually a sphere. If the world was flat and we set out across it, we'd eventually reach an edge. But since the world is round, we'd keep going and eventually end up where we started. Now, the same is true of the universe. In a closed universe... The universe is curved into a four-dimensional, or even higher-dimensional, sphere. If we set out across that sphere in a straight line, we'll go for a very long way, longer than we can ever see from Earth. But eventually we'll find ourselves back on the Earth again. And if we live in an open universe, then the same sort of thing happens, but there's all sorts of weirdness like chirality shifts and stuff that goes on that I don't really want to get into. But if we live in a flat universe, we can set out in a straight line and keep going forever. So which is it? Well, all the measurements we can make so far say that the universe is flat, very flat. We'll never actually be able to see enough of it to say that there's absolutely no curvature, in the same way that you can't take any object and say it's absolutely flat. Even a flat piece of paper has tiny ridges on it, and even the flattest things have bumps on the scale of individual atoms. But the latest data we have is to say that the universe is at least as flat as the average pancake. Thank you very much for all the brilliant answers. And if you have any astronomical questions that you want answered, then send them in via all the usual channels. Thanks for that, Ian and Christina. Now we move on to the feedback, and uh, I'm delighted to say that once again we have a postcard, so you Yay. guys do listen when I say send in post. So it's a lovely um, 
postcard with the northern lights and what I assume is a fjord with some nice little houses. Uh, as usual, I'll be posting a picture of it on the Twitter account soon enough. So it's from Patrick Wyman, and he sent this from Tromso in Norway. And he says, well, haven't seen any aurora yet. Sorry, Patrick. Um, usual astro problem, 100% cloud. However, good lecture from Ian Ridpath on this astronomical voyage, and a good collection of Jodcasts. They compensate. Oh, we're glad you feel that way. So thanks for the postcard that's going to go up on our wall O postcards, and um, keep sending them in, guys. Uh, I'm going to read out a couple of emails that we've got as well, just the one. Um, there's an email, lovely email from J.M. Tremblay, uh, who says, Congrats to the legendary Jodrell Bank Observatory in general, and to the Jodcast in particular. I love the format and interviews. You always have great guests, and as an amateur astronomer, I never fail to learn new and interesting information. Keep up the excellent work. Thanks a lot, J.M. Uh, Stuart Doherty has posted to our Facebook wall to say that the Jodcast is the best astro podcast around. Long may it continue. Well done, everyone. So thank you for that, Stuart. And Shankar Shanky was also on to say, It's so interesting to keep listening to Jodcast whenever I am free or on the go every month. I have invited all my friends to Jodcast. Thanks a lot for the great interviews of astronomers and explanation of Cosmos. So I'm glad you enjoyed that, Shankar. And of course, thank you for all the likes and welcome to our new followers. Um, on Twitter, we've had a number of tweets, um, so I'm just going to pick one. And this one is from Suntrek Tweets, who says, Salford kids have a pile of questions about the sun. Thanks to the Jogcast and others for helping answering them. So that's, uh, that's referring to a slightly special episode that we're going to be having out in the next couple of weeks or the next month. So keep, watch this space. <laughs> Uh, and as always, thank you for all the retweets and the follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post, and the address is on the website. So all that's left to say now is thanks to Brian Reese and Rob Crittenden for the interviews. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Sally Cooper, and Christina Smith. The producer was Sally Cooper. So until next time, John. John.